0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. You can find us at ezrainstitute.ca, and we're also on the podcast roster at uh, Rebel Alliance Media. That's rebelalliancemedia.com. And I encourage you to check out both of those ministries. There are plenty of resources to help you understand and apply the lordship of Jesus Christ, uh, pushing it into every corner of life and every area of society. That's ezrainstitute.ca and rebelalliancemedia.com. So here on the podcast for Cultural Reformation, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and we had Joe Boot and Andrew Sandlin on to talk about what the EICC has been doing all summer long, this, uh, this summer of 2019. You can go back and listen to that podcast from a couple of weeks back. And for those of you who have been asking, uh, if you go to our website, ezrainstitute.ca, You'll see that all of the dates for our 2020 programming, the dates and the rates, are now online. So we've got uh, we've got plans for the Runner Academy, for the Worldview Leadership Camp, and for the uh, the University Introduction Course called To Give an Answer. We're running all of those again next summer in 2020. Details are posted online at EzraInstitute.ca. Go ahead and check them out. So today my guest is Andrew Sandlin. Anyone who's listened to this show will know who Andrew is by now. He's a dear friend of ours, and Andrew and I sat down to talk about the dominion mandate, caring for God's world, and the theology that, uh, that actually should inform a biblical view of creation care. Andrew talks about what it means when Scripture says that God is making all things new, And explains the idea of restoration, uh, not as the putting aside of the created order, but as the enhancement and the renewal of a world that God had made very good from the beginning. So God made the world, God loves the world, and so should we. I hope you enjoy it.
1: But Ryan, what would you like me to talk about?
0: Well, uh, I'm I'm just glad you're here. You you were talking about a couple of funny stories. And I have a funny story as well, speaking about what you were speaking about. Okay. Uh, somebody uh, somebody came up to me after one of your lectures. She was excitedly like holding out her phone, showed me, look, look, I just found Dr. Sandlin's podcasts. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I found This uh, this lecture on critical theory that he, yes, had, he yes. tears apart. So I'm going to go and listen to that right now. Well,
1: that's encouraging. That'll keep me making podcasts. That's yeah, good.
0: Good. Good. you've been podcasting, you've been traveling, you've been kind of moving in here for uh, for this summer anyway, uh, and we're delighted to have you.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. That it's...
0: What uh, what else are you working on?
1: So i um, been so busy lately um, preparing new talks and lectures. A lot of those, you know, Ryan, I um, just turn into books, mm-hmm. collections of essays on loosely related topics. I'm sure one day I'll go back and do even more extensive research and write more extensive things, but you know... Four- and five-chapter books are often helpful to people today, whether in digital format or hard
0: copy. Something more, a bit more easily digestible.
1: That's right, um, and I think that's um, important. I wish we lived in an age when people routinely read long books, like I try to do, but a lot of people either can't or don't do that. So that's what I tend to do. Um, one a book that I've been wanting to put out for a while uh, is a book uh, tentatively titled uh, The Creational Worldview.
0: Yes, you, men- you mentioned that the other day.
1: Um, <clears throat> maybe I could talk about that a minute, because Terrific, um, I story. generally do not write books um, unless I feel a burning need to. It's not as though, well, I think up a topic, I know that would be nice to write about. There's mm-hmm. usually some mm-hmm. impetus behind it.
0: Yeah, well, you can't you can't put out any, I'm not aware at least of any book worth reading where, the goal was write a book. It was right. the, Like you said, the impetus has got to be, this is important, this is something that needs to be said.
1: The author has to have the proverbial fire in the belly. That's it. Uh, as Martin Luther is reputed to have said, I do my best writing when I'm mad. <laughs> uh, there's some truth to that, I'm sure, too. Yeah. And certainly knowing Luther, as we've known him historically. So the issue here with the creational worldview uh, and the sort of, fire In my belly was growing up as a conservative evangelical, even fundamentalist. I really noticed while I appreciated a great deal in that heritage, and a lot of it continues with me today. I think one of the uh, weaknesses of it, and not just mine, but that of you know, 20th century evangelicalism, North American, American, Canadian, and probably also British, is um, while stressing the importance of redemption, understanding Christ's redemptive work on the cross and his resurrection, rightly understanding the centrality of that, Uh, they tend to have a a correspondingly low view of creation. Um, And part of that goes with the territory. I mean, think of the word evangelical. We hear the word evangel. uh, The gospel is the euangelion, the good news, and of course it is good news. But that good news, sadly, in evangelicalism has been decontextualized.
0: That's right. That's right. Which, is, which robs it of any possibility of goodness.
1: That's exactly right. right. Is and that so, where you were going? Did I yes. run ahead of you? I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's so, correct. I think what happens then is that because there's no sense or at least little sense of creation or much sense of history, there's almost, dare I say it, of the Bardian sense, though they would oppose Karl Barth as they should, of religious history. So we have this sort of religious redemptive history that is a very special kind of history that's really important. And history is just basically around, and creation's just basically around, so that Jesus could come and be born and die and save us from our sins. And correspondingly, Christianity is largely about just going to church in this life and being close to the Lord and having a good vertical relationship with the Lord and getting people converted and into the church and then sort of escaping the sinful earth and going to heaven when we die. And that's largely what the Christian faith is all about. Tangent things to evangelism, but...
0: Yeah, and I mean, like,
1: you know, soup soup kitchens. Soup kitchens, yes. Doing specific good deeds, no question. Yeah. But the notion that... um, God created this world for something greater than simply a platform for redemption is something they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of factors here, I think. Um, somebody said it well when they said this really uh, comes down to a distinction between the Genesis 1 and 2 Christians and the Genesis 3 Christians. Okay. okay. So let's take the Genesis 3 Christians first. Of course, if you've read the Bible, you know Genesis 3 is largely given to the account of the entrance of sin right. in the fall. And also the promise in Genesis 3.15, uh, the proto-evangelium yeah. of the the good news and the good news of salvation that Christ, though his name is not mentioned, it's quite clear there that he is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, and we all know that that is the cross. This sort of language and metaphor is used again and again in the New Testament. Uh, And of course, that is correct. But the problem is that in jumping past Genesis 1 and 2, we think that essentially God's purposes in history are all about that. But if we read Genesis 1 and 2, we wouldn't come to that conclusion. We would see Genesis 3 occurs only within the context of God's creative purposes. So God establishes in Genesis 1 his creational norms, um, that uh, there's a creator-creature distinction. Man made imago Dei in the image of God. Man and woman uh, equally in the image of God, though distinct. Mm -hmm. God made them to be humans, but uh, they gave them distinctions. And then, uh, what I want to stress um here for the next few minutes is the cultural mandate, mm-hmm. the calling to dominion yeah so
0: we're uh, we're no strangers to that here that's, that's right, right. We're, uh, we're all all for it
1: that's right, and that's one thing I appreciate profoundly about the e i c c understanding this primordial calling um, I'll explain it for a, for a minute because sadly, a lot of christians Though they would understand the Great Commission, they would not understand the cultural commission, the cultural mandate. Mm-hmm. But these are both biblical, both biblical mandates. In fact, I would go so far as to say that what's called the Great Commission, the Redemptive Commission,
0: yeah. Just go into or it, it's uh, all authority in heaven and on and earth. On earth. And that's, that's right, and go
1: and, yes, and get the gospel to all nations, uh, disciple yeah. all the nations. Yeah. Um, A a different version of that, of course, in Mark, preach the gospel to the world. That essentially is this dominion commission given in Genesis 1. Take dominion. And by the way, I I think we need to go back quickly. God states to Adam and Eve, so I'm giving you your task. Yes. This is your job description. Your job description is to care for, steward the earth, take dominion over the earth, not in an autonomous way, under my authority. So essentially, he's, he's deputizing them under his authority to oversee the earth. And uh, that's the physical aspects of the earth and things that develop and uh, I think could be included as we see included later in the scripture, intellectual developments. Uh, All of these things, man as man, as of course godly man made in his image is supposed to exercise dominion. Now, that is not a minor point of the Bible, but because the um, Genesis 3 Christians have had the largest influence, that tends to be marginalized. So I think, Ryan, uh, this is a really long answer to your question. I might be going a little too long. Feel Feel free free to jump in. It's okay.
0: We will. We'll get there.
1: Um, I think it would be much better if Christians understood that the Great Commission and this work of redemption, to be really understood, has to first be situated within this creational context. It's working out the implications of things like that, that this book is going to be about.
0: So in that, uh, like, as, as you're talking about that, it's really, you can't, you can't really talk about redemption or restoration or like a setting, a setting back to what's right, uh, unless you started with a good thing.
1: That's right. That's, um. Even these, in English, this RE, like you said, it tends to betray a genuinely biblical understanding, but people don't think about the RE. Mm. Regeneration and redemption and restoration and these sorts of things. But this is because people don't understand the storyline of the Bible. The narrative of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption. So we think about this creation, a good creation, and then there is the fall from creation. And it's important to understand that the fall... Uh, is ethical, Yes, the fall is not ontological. And by that I just mean creation did not become somehow inherently bad or less than it is creatively. It simply came under a curse. Man himself didn't become less of a creature. He didn't become a good example of this is to think, so when Adam and Eve fell, it's not as though Adam became less inherently intelligent. It's just that he used his intelligence in a distorted way. Right. Because of that, redemption is not an attempt to push creation to the side and create some new order. It is the restoration and enhancement of an order that is already good, that is very good. Um, Of course, too many Christians, sadly, um, don't understand it. And because they don't understand it, the implications are pretty momentous, Ryan. It changes. It affects their prayer life, their church life, because for them, to get saved, when they read, uh, when any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. They think by that, well, that means there's no connection to the older original creation. No, it means this: he's a new ethical creation. Essentially, when we're converted, God opens up our hearts to the truth. He places His Spirit in us in a unique way, and He opens up our already constitutionally good minds. He turns them ethically in the right direction, or our hearts back in the right direction. Having said that, basically, uh, regeneration is the return to and enhancement of a very good creation. But Christians don't think that way. Uh, part of this, I'll mention one other thing, and feel free to ask anything else. Because of this, uh, not understanding this, we don't recognize the inherent goodness of creation. It's very good. yes. I think it was Al Walters that once said, um, God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't junk what he makes.
0: That's, uh, that's a good expression.
1: Yes, he doesn't make junk. So to think, well, the world is evil, well, the Bible uses that term in the Greek cosmos in different ways. It says, when the Bible says in First John don't love the world, he doesn't mean don't love creation. Sometimes cosmos means, and John often uses this in his gospel and um, in the epistles, as the system, the satanic system, of a way of thinking and living, under this sinister worldview. That's what he means. But, he, uh, but biblically, we are to love the world, the created world, because this is the world God gave us. He loves it, and we should love it. Um, so, and having said that, and I'll tie this up, and we can move to something else. If that is the case, then man's main calling is to a restoration, to oversee the earth and to bring glory to God in all that we do. So we have not a theology, a, and we don't have a soteriology, salvation doctrine, of escape. We have a soteriology of dominion, or a soteriology of stewardship, or of earthly creational responsibility.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you said, uh, you said a couple of things there, and, and used a couple of words that I think uh, might, you know, in our day and age, uh, have contributed to some of this confusion. Um, because scripture does speak like you said of a new creation. Yes. And uh, it like you like you said John absolutely does say at least in our English bibles like you know do not to uh, like do not be surprised if the world mm-hmm. hates you and yes. do you know don't love the world. That's right. Um now yeah in, in uh, these these carry a different sense as you as you alluded to. Mm-hmm. But they uh, when when these when these passages were first translated, this was the right English word to use, but it didn't used to be understood in in the sort of radically uh disconnected way like new didn't used to be understood as completely separate from right. what used to be
1: yeah well well said, Ryan and part of that I must say is the contribution of of Revolutionary ideologies. New then means what we call like brand new. Or a brand revolution new. brings something brand new, but in the Bible, actually, uh, new means a new phase of something. Now it's we even use that term today. We're and kind of we, we betray ourselves when we talk about the phases of the moon and we say, oh, that's a new moon. Well, no one would say, uh-huh. oh, so God took right before you know God took the other moon away and created a new one. And new one and no, we would say mm-hmm. it's a new phase. Well, it's very similar in the case of the new creation or the new world. Um,
0: The new birth. The
1: new birth. That's exactly right. It's sort of a new phase of God's work. So it's particularly the case in uh, the new covenant. And we know that's the case, Ryan, because when we compare many of the provisions of the old Mosaic covenant with the new covenant, a lot of them are quite similar, placing the law of God on the heart. I will be a god of them. There will be... a people. Now, there are new provisions, this sort of powerful permanence to it. That's the newness element. But it's not as though God is saying, oh, everything about that Mosaic covenant is bad, and so I'm creating a new good one. No, what he's really saying, and this is really true when you read the book of Hebrews, there was a temporary good one, and now I'm doing a new permanent one in continuity with the old one. Um, And that's certainly true also in a related sense to the term world. When John says, "For God so loved the world, he right. obviously did not mean God loves this satanic system
0: yes, these worldly powers and these dominions. worldly powers
1: that 's right, so it's important uh, not to import our own and in many cases modern meanings into these words, but to hey we've got to do a good job of exegesis but the, but also in addition to that, just common sense thinking about how these words are used in different contexts mm-hmm.
0: so let 's uh let's, let's keep on with this, uh, this idea of the creational worldview that, uh, mm-hmm. that you've been, uh, thinking about and, uh, stoking up a fire in the belly about, about, yes. uh, let, let's carry this, this idea of newness, uh, through to the end when, mm-hmm. uh, and I mean, I'm talking about the end of, uh, the end of scripture in the book mm-hmm. of revelation and I guess relatedly to like the end of history. Um, so Jesus says that, uh, I am making all things new. Yes. Uh, but uh, again, how does how does that relate? How does that statement and that activity relate to the the original good creation?
1: Okay, good question. So now you're on home turf. I am, <laughs> but we've got to go into uh, the weeds a little bit here, Ryan. But I'll make it uh, simple. A lot of Christians, this is another thing. A lot of believers today, for some reason, don't understand. Um, a lot of times. And when the Bible speaks about the end or about coming, immediately Christians have been conditioned to think, well, this is obviously the second coming at the end of history. Yeah. Uh, in many cases, not all in the Bible, this sort of this newness uh, and the end refers to the end of the old covenant era and the newness of God's expanded redemptive purposes to his new people of God, Jew and Gentile, one in Jesus Christ. Uh, This necessitated uh, judgment. And I was just thinking about this. I'm planning, I'm going out on a tour in October. I think I'm going to speak on this, Ryan. I don't know of any particular predictive event, an event foretold in the Bible in so many ways that is more neglected today than the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, there are other things that are predicted in the Bible, Uh, that people say, oh, that's obviously a biblical prediction. But it's remarkable. The Bible is quite clear on this. Uh, I won't go to all of them, but I mean, think about Jesus and the parables. He's constantly telling the unbelieving Jews, if you keep refusing, if you keep turning your back on me as the son of God, that I'm going to take this kingdom and give it to someone else. He says, your house, and it comes toward the end, and it's really harrowing, right? Mm -hmm. Your house has left you desolate, and not one stone is going to be left in this temple. And Of course, you can imagine how startled the disciples and they're thinking, what, how can this happen? When will this be? And of course, he goes on to the discourse. Well, that discourse, part of it, in part of it, he is talking about the final judgment and coming. But in the first part of it, clearly he's talking about the judgment at Jerusalem, the prophecies about that. Uh, The book of Hebrews, you look, I've just been reading in the last part of Hebrews 12 about the Lord as shaking things and he shook things, of course, at Horeb when the law came first. But then he's talking this shaking is the shaking and taking away of the temporary old covenant and the bringing in the new Jerusalem and the new Zion. He's not talking about the eternal stay there. He's talking about the sphere and the realm of the new covenant. We're living in it right now. Yep. So in many ways, it's really interesting, Well, How does, how
0: does Hebrews start up in these last these days? These last
1: days. I wish people understood that. People ask us sometimes, they say, Reverend Sandlin, don't you believe that we're living in the last days? And I say, Yes. And we have been for about 2,000 years. That's and of course, right. they, they like the first part of the answer and not the second part. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what about all
0: these movies with aliens?
1: Right, right. exactly. So, so the, the, the last days, why do we call them the last days? Now, we would ask, why would God even use that language mm-hmm. if he's not referring to like the last you know, month or you know, weeks yeah. before yeah. the second coming? Why would he use that? Because it's the last days of God's redemptive purposes in history. After these days are over, the Bible says there will come, these days, this realm of history, and it could last a very long time, mm-hmm. after they're called the last days, because then Christ will come, there will be the final resurrection, the final judgment, the new heavens, we can perhaps talk about this later, will come down and the new earth will be joined. So there aren't any earthly days before the, the, the final judgment, the finality of human history after these. That's why they're called the last days. Because there are, there's no new segment after this, apart from the eternal state, Right, which will be a joined heaven and Earth. No, now we got that was a long answer, wasn't it? So <laughs> that was one aspect of the meaning. You were talking about the meaning of newness. Right. And
0: so newness, and then the other, or the other word, I guess, was world.
1: Yes, so
0: God he, loved the world, and we're not to be surprised that the world hates us and that's right. right. So, so uh, the world is being made new.
1: Yeah, sometimes that term in the older translations, world is the translation not of cosmos, but what we would call eon or age. So we're we're living in the, we talk about the new age. Well, the, the biblical new age is the redemptive age, this present age when Jesus Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords. He's died on the cross, risen, ruling and reigning. That is the final redemptive age of the earth. We're living in the new world. So um, with, um, in fact, Peter says it, in many ways, the comparison there in Peter is the old world. It says the old world perished. So you here you have this world, the antediluvian world, perished in the flood. Then there's the new world, not long after Genesis 9. Immediately we turn around and, oh, well, not long after that, God's calling out a people, Israel. And so now we have a new world. But then, of course, Israel turns away from the Lord, and eventually God says, I'm going to make the last pre-consummate new world in Jesus Christ, get rid of the old covenant and the new covenant. Then, of course, we could truly say, and the Bible does use this, is there another world after this? Yes, but that is the consummate. And that is the final, eternal world. And it's not off in outer space somewhere, as Revelation says. That truly final world. And no one can say about that it is the last days because it's not really, it's the eternal day. Right. So that's this kind of, what I've described real quickly here, is just sort of a biblical philosophy of history and an eschatology so people can understand what in this world is going on?
0: Yeah, perfect. Yeah. No, there's a there's a need for that kind of understanding. Yeah. So let's uh, maybe if I can uh, if I can pivot there. I'm just kind of riffing on uh, on what you're uh, what you're bringing up here. Um, let's uh, let's talk about the Church of God. And it, again, uh, this uh, in these passages in Revelation, we talk about the New Jerusalem. Uh, for coming down out of heaven, as you said, yes. not getting shunted off up there, the right. coming down out of heaven, but mm-hmm. adorned as a bride prepared for her husband. Yes, which is the language that we read throughout the rest of the New Testament for the church. Yes. Um, maybe you could just uh, give a give a bit of an explanation on the relationship of uh, of the church to that to the eternal days and yes. who 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 God's covenant people are?
1: Oh, uh, yes. Good question. That could at some points involve some controversy. So, um, uh,
0: Well, then never mind. We don't do that kind of thing here. <laughs> far far be didn't. it from me, Ryan, <laughs> to say
1: anything controversial. Uh, interesting, we're recording this at the Worldview Leadership Camp, and one of the students actually asked me a similar question, so it's on my mind. Um,
0: they're, they're good students. They
1: are very good students and very gifted, and I hope those of you listening and watching will send your uh, young people and make application in future years. So um, when we talk in the Bible about the people of God, there are several things to consider. First, God has always had a people. Adam and Eve were his first people. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, he destroyed almost the entire earth because of the extensiveness of sin. And so God started again with Noah, gave him the cultural mandate mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. Um, As you look at it, that civilization sadly went downhill and after Babel God called out a unique people for his name, the Jews, mostly ethnic Jews, but it wasn't principally about race actually because he established standards and means by which if you were not a part of the physical seed of Abraham, you could become a part of these people, become part of the, the male circumcised and be included within the visible people of God. Right. So I, I say that because some people have the idea, well, in the Old Testament, the only people that could people be the people of God were ethnic Jews. Actually, that's not true.
0: That's right. No, uh, there were several there, provisions.
1: Several provisions. There was what's called the mixed multitude and uh, a number of uh, what we would call true Old Testament believers, even those like Rahab, in the line of Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. That's right. Um, who was not a Jew. So, But principally, uh, with the Jews, Well, when we come into the New Testament, as I mentioned earlier, the Jews, not all of them, thank God, but the Jews largely as a nation turned their back on Jesus Christ. And so the, 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 the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises, and they're not only New Testament promises. God had already told Abraham, your seed is going to be so large as to fill the entire earth. And nations, you'll be a, a great blessing to many nations. And it's not just going to be you and Israel. Well, the Bible says in Ephesians, Christ's death on the cross actually does that. It breaks down this wall between Jew and Gentile. And now the true people of God are those who are united to a Jew, a Messiah, whose name is Jesus. This means that all of those who have trusted Christ are a part of the true church, the ecclesia, the called out people of God, and we are the true Israel and the inheritance of all of these promises. Now, sadly, in some quarters, Ryan, that's considered controversial, Mm -hmm. but the Christian church almost uniformly for 18, 1900 years has recognized that the church is the true Israel. It's the rise of a particular uh, view of uh, interpretation, dispensationalism in the 19th century. That view has somehow become controversial in some quarters uh, of uh, evangelicalism. But it shouldn't be. I mean, the Bible's quite clear. We are the people of God. Uh, not excluding Jews. Any Jew that trusts in, ethnic Jew that trusts in Jesus Christ is a part of the true people of God. Any Gentile part of the true people of God. What we can't say is that God has a separate plan for unbelieving Jews that have a special unique relationship to God apart from Jesus Christ. me make right. emphatically clear, you cannot be right with God if you're not right with Jesus Christ. Yes, He is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the only way to be right with God. Does God have a, a future for the nation Israel? In my view, yes. Romans 11, yes, emphatically but always within Jesus Christ, not apart from Jesus Christ. Right. right. Many yeah. will right. turn to him.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's no, uh, there's no, like, back door.
1: There's no back door to God. You, you come to God through Christ. So I spent some time there just because that's a, a misunderstood point. But so let's go back to the church. Yeah. The church is this called out people of God, the ecclesia in continuity with the Old Testament. Uh, the, this, this, the church is not the kingdom of God, but an aspect of the kingdom. The kingdom is the rule of God in all the earth. The church is one institution within that rule, like the family. That's right. And like the state. But the church has its own unique responsibilities in preaching the word and preserving uh, theological orthodoxy, its monopoly on uh, the sacraments. Some churches call them ordinances. Uh, the state can't give you communion. That's and right. And the family should not do it. I mean, apart from the authority of the church, the church yeah. is led by leaders presbyters or elders, we would say. The main thing is not specifically the language of the leadership, but the content, the meaning of the leadership. So the goal of this church, of the church, the people of God, and when I say the church, of course I'm speaking, you can speak generically of all the people of God who belong to him. Some call it the invisible church, not the best language, but sure. there's certainly a, a localized expression of these churches who are true churches. They are true churches. Um, who um, are bound to Jesus Christ under the authority of elders, trust in Christ, bound to the word of God, and so on. Their responsibility, though, is just like that of the family, ideally, and the state and other institutions. It is to, in their own unique way, enhance and press the reign of God, the kingdom of God, in their own way. Now, they do it a little differently than the family does. They certainly do it differently than the state does. But these churches, the church, has this... In other words, all of these institutions, ideally, were created to advance the kingdom of God. And that means being faithful to this dominion mandate.
0: Yeah, the other, so the other aspect of that is this, this mention, again, in, uh, in Revelation of, oh, yes. uh, of the new Jerusalem.
1: I've forgotten that, yes, right.
0: And uh, just, just the, the language, the bridal language, which is yes. so often used for the church, yes, now yep. applied uh, for the city.
1: Yeah, that, that's, that shows, uh, and of course this is the same sort of language that Paul uses, of course, in Ephesians right. 6. Um, that, that metaphor is used to show the love and intimacy that Christ has for his people. Um, and it's interesting, that's also the language used, as I said there, I'm just reading it again in Hebrews chapter 12, This the, the heavenly Zion, the Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem, the people of God. Now, it's interesting that the writer says that we have come to that city. So he's he's not talking spatially, not spatially, but in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's talking uh, theologically and ecclesially. Now, I think this is really important for people to understand, Ryan, because it says heavenly, and immediately when we hear heaven, we'll think, well, okay, so heaven is way out there somewhere. So, I mean, but I'm still on earth, so we get this dualistic idea. Maybe there's a sense in which my spirit is up there, but that's not the point that the writer's making at all. Uh, Heaven indicates there a heavenly city means a city under the authority of, under the care of the sovereign triune God, where Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. So in the Bible, heaven is a created reality. Um, The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some people, it seems, have the idea that God eternally needed heaven to live in. God's a spirit. He doesn't need any place to live. Yeah. But he created heaven as sort of a means of a place, as it were, to dwell, to relate to the earth. Well, that's why in the end, that's why the heavens will come down to earth. He won't, That won't be necessary anymore. God will come down and dwell immediately with his people in the eternal state. So when we talk about the heavenly Jerusalem uh, and the true bride, we don't mean that, well, the, the real bride, this is, some people say, all those who've died, they're a part sort of of the, of the real perfected bride, and that we down here are part of the imperfect bride. Well, it's true that they're no longer sinless, but there's a remarkable unity there, because we have, we have already come to this city. Now, we haven't come to it in its fullness. That will never happen until, I mean, that won't happen until the final judgment and the eternal state. So when we talk about God's love for his people, the reason I'm saying all of that, Ryan, is I'm saying this is much more intimate than people know. God is very close to his people. Heaven is very close here. Mm -hmm. His authority is is surrounding us. In him we live and move and have our being. That's true of everybody, even the Bible says, but But, particularly.
0: That's such a good phrase. His authority is surrounding us. His
1: authority is surrounding us. And so we don't look at that as something oppressive. It's, it's it's a wonderful security that the one who loved us, who gave himself for us on the cross and suffered for us and died and rose again is is surrounding us at every point. Um, and that's the great, when we go to church, we quote, go to church, we are, among other things, celebrating that remarkable intimacy. Yeah.
0: I think that, that brings a lot of clarity to the uh, the question. Yes.
1: yes. I think, can I add something here, Ryan? Please. Okay. Though the church is... Uh, an institution in history. It's also fair to say the church is a supernatural institution. I often say when I'm preaching on this topic, so I'm standing there before the congregation, I say, no, look, we're like sitting here. Fundamentally, this is no different, perhaps, than many other meetings going on. Maybe yesterday in the city, they perhaps also had pianos and guitars and people would stand up and speak and people sit and listen. And we might think, well, this is just sort of a religious version of that, but it's not. The church is there's something greater than the sum of its parts. This is the the God promises when two or three are gathered, His presence is there among His people. So there is a radical uniqueness to the church as the people of God uh, when they meet, and that's of course why the church. One reason, not the only one, that the church is so important. Um, You can you can get things in the church that are not designed to be gotten anywhere else. Yeah. That the family can't give you. Mm. Certainly that the state can't give you. And even friends can't give you. Uh, the church is a supernatural community, the coming together. And that's what ecclesia means is sort of this gathering. It's 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 an actually it's not a unique religious word at all. In the Greek, it was the sort of the Greek city states and so on. The ecclesia was the group of citizens who would get together to make decisions. Mm. You know, these these high these highly called ones, these citizens, as opposed to slaves would come together and you know well. There's a, this, something we're going to discuss about. Well, that's that's the very term that's used. This this called into a meeting, and mm-hmm. uh, to a community. That's what that's the word that was chosen. Uh, ecclesia. Uh, in fact, it's it's not. If you've read, um, I'm going off on a tangent here, but it's a good tangent. If you have read Tyndale's New Testament. Uh, first uh, New Testament in English. He doesn't translate ecclesia church, he translates a community. Is that right? Uh, nothing wrong with church, but it's developed the idea, the kirk, of, of a building. That's not right. what ecclesia is, it's the community. Now, of course, the community usually is of such size it needs to meet in a building, but I mean, in North Korea, the church certainly can meet outside. So it yeah, doesn't of have, course. To have a building. So, yeah. But the important thing is the community, the, the specially blood bought resurrection style um loving uh submissive dominionist uh in the best sense community that's what ecclesia really implies
0: nice you said something just there that uh there's potential for more controversy mm-hmm. and lest we uh be accused of just hawking controversy yes um you said dominionist in yes. the best sense yes can you uh, can we go off on into uh that uh, the dominion mandate, yes. or the cultural mandate. Yes,
1: I always want to explain that language.
0: Yeah, yeah the uses and abuses of it.
1: Yes, you bet. It's uh, the language. Actually, in English, it's, it's it's good language, but it can easily be misunderstood. Part of that is something that I that I um, spoke about today, uh, lectured about today, and that is the Marxist idea that almost every human relationship is based in domination. Yes. And therefore, to speak of dominion is essentially, well, so this is where all of this enslavement in the world came from. Mm -hmm. It came from, and I've actually read radical environmentalists that make this very point. They say, if you want to know where uh, the destruction of environment, the environment first came from, it's rooted in this uh, dominion mandate in Genesis that is flatly untrue. If you read the rest of the Bible, you'll find out that God gives very specific laws about how to treat creation very responsibly and how to specific things that creation, uh, including plants and, of course, animals, how they can and cannot be used. So God is not saying to man in exercising dominion in the earth, oh, just go off and do whatever you want. He does not say that at all. He has specific laws. Um, Having said that, We do need to recognize that man is unique as God's creation. And just as God is the true perfect sovereign in all the earth, so man, we might say, is the sub sovereign. He is the deputy. Now, if we want to argue with that, we're just arguing with God. If what, let's, I'm just picking on environmentalists now, but, and some of the Marxists who, cultural Marxists who also like environmentalism for this reason. Mm If they say, well, the problem with domination is that man shouldn't have a unique place in the world, well, their argument then is with God, because right. because that kind, if you want to call that domination, I don't like that language, because it's not the same word, but certainly we're to have that kind of dominion, but do it responsibly and charitably and in a caring way. One problem with that word, of course, it's often used to say, well, Christians, of course, are trying to recapture politics to to impose their, their view on everybody else. Well, that's about like eight ways wrong.
0: Sure,
1: I'll mention a couple of them. Uh, one of them, as believers, we believe in the power of the gospel. We believe, Because of that, we believe in a very limited state or politics. Yeah. If, if genuine Christians who understood the word of God were to influence politics in a greater way, the irony is politics would become radically less important. Uh, the state would get out of, all sorts of things it's involved in now, um, uh, much of the, all of the medicine and state hospitals, all of this would be back, put back in places that can do a much better job of it. Mm-hmm. It's true in education. It's true in other things. Many things, this business, well, God's law is oppressive. I'm like Almost, I mean, 95% of the things that are illegal today, uh, 95%, I don't mean the specific moral law, would yeah. not, would not be illegal. I mean, you can drive all of these extra laws and laws about rearing your children. There would be many fewer laws, yeah. no question about that. But I, and all
0: yeah. law is oppressive in some sense. It's like an law, right. yeah. Like law is uh, like necessarily coercive. That is the nature of law, and, and why do we
1: need that? Because of course, man is sinful. But I must say this. There is even law, if you want to use that, even in the Garden of Eden. I mean, there is yes. a structure. Law is a particular structure.
0: And, there, it, and it has a an authority, an yes. authority figure.
1: That's right. And to, and to people who say, well, I don't like any law and I'm really mad at the police officer, really change their tune when somebody's breaking into their house right. and trying to rape right. their wife. They want the police officer and guns yeah. or whatever as quickly as possible. So it's easy to refute that. But I, I guess even more fundamentally, the idea of, domination. We as Christians, we understand that the gospel is something that can be embraced, it can't be imposed. We're not Muslims, we can't force people. Now a few times historically there were sadly some Christian rulers that tried to force people to be baptized, that was just an anomaly. The the idea that Christianity would influence society doesn't mean that there would be this notion that people would be forced to become Christians, all to the contrary. There couldn't even be this society at all if it were not the large, either a majority or at least a large minority of Christians who peacefully accept the word of God. So there's no uh, concern here over the imposition of sort of oppressive laws. I mean, other than the imposition of, I'm sorry, you can't steal and you can't murder and you can't, you know, do these other things that are harmful to people. Yeah,
0: yeah, we don't don't do these things here.
1: We don't do these things here. Yes, so. Anyway, that, that kind of addresses some of those issues of domination and dominion and so on. No,
0: that's helpful. I don't know if, you'd, if you're aware of this. There's no reason why you would be. But uh, our, our national anthem in Canada, uh, O Canada, yeah. it has several verses that uh, don't really get sung much anymore. But one of them says, uh, and we're, uh, we are technically the dominion of Canada. Yes. Uh, but one of, the, one of these verses says is, it's a prayer. And it says ruler supreme who hearest humble prayer hold our dominion in thy loving care oh beautiful so, some of I these uh, yeah that. a lot of these suppressed verses are just awesome
1: that's right and by the way it's no conspiracy theory to recognize they were suppressed for a reason yeah
0: yeah well, yeah. well we're yeah. even working on retinkering the the main verse because it says uh true patriot love in all thy son's command. And you can't have that kind of gendered language anymore. <laughs> yeah. This,
1: uh, this is where I'm the cultural Marxists are winning the battle. You're it's uh, the grammar itself is a, is a political tool. That's too. right. Yeah.
0: That's well, Andrew, before we, uh, before we wrap up, I yes. really appreciate you being here. Let's, yeah. uh, let's circle back to uh, a, a, creational worldview. In the, yes. bo- the book that you're working on Yes. Um, who should read it, uh, and what do you hope that they get from it?
1: Boy, good. Thank you for asking that, Ryan. Um, I think that any believer that wants uh, to understand a genuine Christian worldview that hasn't been exposed, that maybe has been exposed largely to only the redemptive aspects of the Christian worldview, but not the creational aspects, should read it. I think young people, uh, like those at, uh, that would be at Runner Academy, and, and even some at the Worldview Leadership Camp would be competent to read it. It's not going to be a, a technical work. Uh, it's not going to be a dumbed down work. You're going to have to work, but I mean, it can be understood. I'm dealing also with the problem of which I won't go into non Gnosticism, how deeply Gnosticism, the ancient heresy, yes. is still alive and well, yep. tragically, in the modern world, and what it means to live as a creational Christian, not just a redemptionist, to enjoy. Creation and what it means to enjoy God's good world. Uh, as I pointed out today in one of the talks, the notion that creation will always lead us away from God is false. Creation, if properly understood, if our heart is right, will lead us right to God. So I'll deal with that and other things, but particularly believers that need or want a greater understanding of the Christian way of looking at the world and even if I can say Christian existentialism that is living within the world, I think would benefit from reading it.
0: Perfect. And it's not out yet, but uh, we should what, watch your website for Watch uh, the website. Uh,
1: that. Yep, christianculture.com. Uh, feel free to send me. Um, some of you are listening are already friends on Facebook. You can send me a Facebook message. My email is sandlin at saber, S A B E R, spelled the American way, S A B E R dot not Sabri in the, in the British way. Sandlot or you can get the email at the website. But yes, it'll be announced for sure. Perfect. We'll be, uh, we'll be watching for that.
0: Andrew, thanks a lot for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. It's great. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast from Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.esrainstitute.ca.